welcome and thank you for joining us for another edition of Why CT Matters, Yankee Institute's podcast. And today we are so delighted and thrilled to be joined by Professor Gerald Gunderson, colloquially known to all of us at Yankee Institute as Jerry. We're fortunate to be able to claim him as a board member of Yankee Institute and, in fact, our longest-serving board member. Um, Before I actually let him talk, and while we hold him here as part of our captive audience, (laughs) uh, I I should tell you that— Professor Gunderson has been the uh, Shelby Cullum Davis Professor of American Business and Economic Enterprise and Director of the Shelby Cullum Davis Endowment at Trinity College. And he uh, assumed that position in 1982. I'm probably going to embarrass him, but there are so many things about him you should know before we start talking. I'm going to just go on a little bit longer. Uh, He holds a Ph.D. in economics from the University of Washington. And in 1967, his thesis in economic history was supervised by Nobel laureate Douglas North. Um, He's held all kinds of faculty appointments, and he's published numerous academic papers, including studies of the cause of the American Civil War, the demise of the Roman Empire, and models of entrepreneurships. He has authored all kinds of columns, of course, uh, including at the Mothership, otherwise known as the Wall Street Journal. And he's worked with all kinds of national professional associations concerning entrepreneurship, economic and business theory, private enterprise systems, economic education, and public policies. He's served as president of the Association of Private Enterprise Education, and until recently, he was editor of the Journal of Private Enterprise. I think we're all sensing a theme by now. Uh, He was a founding member and is a member of the executive board, as well as the director of the academic advisory board for Yankee Institute. Yes. Um, And he received the Freedom Foundation's Award for Excellence in Private Enterprise Education in 1980. In 1996, he was appointed by Connecticut's governor to the Educational Improvement Panel to develop solutions to our public school issues here in Connecticut. Um, He's the author of The New Economic History of America and The Wealth Creators, an Entrepreneurial History of the United States. And I am going to embarrass Jerry by telling you that Peter Drucker, who is, of course, the mentor of modern management, described his book as quote-unquote brilliant. And I'm delighted but hardly surprised. He continues to write and work on the topics of global entrepreneurship as well as on the growth of anti-slavery sentiment in the U.S. And I could read all kinds of publications and awards he's uh, he's won and written on, but I will just leave it at that and say thanks for being with us, Jerry. Well, I'm grateful to be here. Um, I'm kind of overwhelmed when you go over this resume. <laughs> I, know, I, find, I know it could sound a bit overwhelming, but you've lived it, and it is wonderful. And um, in the most delightfully youthful way, you are a repository of all kinds of Yankee Institute history. Correct. Yeah. And so um, I was wondering, you know, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to be involved with Yankee Institute and its, uh, its early nexus with Trinity College? Of course. Um, when, soon after I got the position at Trinity, I got a call from a fellow by the name of Rich Sweetser. And Rich is, was an engineer who was working on projects down on the shore uh, he worked for a Frenchman by the name of Bernard Zimmern, 
who was a wealthy entrepreneur. He was in the United States developing compressors, of all things. But um, Bernard had been to Heritage Foundation meetings, and he sort of got the spark, and he said, I'd like to take this back to France. Uh, and it turned out that when he checked on the, the legal systems that would allow it, France wouldn't allow the equivalent of a heritage foundation. It wouldn't have that kind of charitable operation. Ooh, la, la. Yeah. Huh. So uh, Bernard got the idea, let's do an offshore operation. And that's why Rich called me and we put together – a Connecticut-based uh, operation for France. Well, it's the offshore think tank. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but uh, what led to that is Rich and I looked at each other and said, we should be doing this for Connecticut. This, this is what Connecticut needs. And so we very quickly agreed. And uh, he went off to uh, file the name of Yankee, which was the natural name for a think tank in Connecticut, and we discovered that we were about three hours ahead of the folks up in Boston who wanted to use the same name. Oh, wow. And so they're now called Pioneer, or they were called Pioneer. Mm -hmm. They've had they their, are. They, they still they're yeah. extant. They, they've had their ups and downs. Uh, but uh, Yankee uh, is the leg legitimate name, and we're, we're happy that we can start with that. For uh, a number of years, Yankee was a kind of part-time uh, volunteer operation, but over time, we've grown. We've moved from being in someone's back office or occasionally um, just something that somebody was able to do uh, to our first office was at Trinity College. The story there was, of course, I was on the lookout for help for Yankee, but the college was buying up empty homes around the college to kind of create a buffer zone in the neighborhood. And they were happy for us to be there for a while. And they even loaned us internet services and allowed us to use auditoriums and things of that sort. So it was a nice boost. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. But then what happened was they discovered that uh, I was, they thought I was a conservative. Okay. So uh, and I am in some degree, right. uh, but uh, they also discovered I had a, a feud with the president at that time. <laughs> <laughs> so at that point, uh, Yankee went looking for offices elsewhere. And there for for a while, they were in East Hartford, right. And that's where they were when I came to Yankee. Yeah, and then they moved to to downtown Hartford. Um, at at the beginning of Yankee. Uh, Rich and I put together a conference on uh, choice in education, and we brought together, we got a surprisingly good combination of scholars who dealt with uh, the research and policy in, in education. And in some ways, Yankee got started with that argument, uh, with that concern, and that's why I was appointed later to the Chef Commission in which we tried to improvise programs that would give inner-city kids a better schooling than they were getting. And, of course, we know this is ongoing, and they only recently have revisited that. And we hope that out of that, it opens up the full opportunities for uh, urban students. So that's where Yankee got started. And, of course, over time, we expanded some interest because Yankee is a member of the state think tank group, mm -hmm. State Policy Network, 
And so we exchanged ideas with others, and I went to a couple of their conferences and uh, got to know some folks. And, and the result was that over time, Yankee has picked up uh, issues, expanded its concern, and now I'm very pleased to say that we have a good-sized operation of really good professional people. Well, you know, it, your interest in uh, and Yankee's initial interest in choice and education, uh, it's something that really Yankee continues to concentrate on even today. And I see that a lot of your work has focused around it because in some ways it really is part of that entrepreneurial mindset, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yes, um, indeed. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about how um, that whole sense of, of trying to take a system that's broken and sort of make it better, make it so that it actually works for the people it's supposed to serve? I mean, that really is part of the whole idea behind school choice, because what we have right now is truly broken. And what kills me about it is that it serves those who need it the most. It serves them worst. Yes, Yes, exactly. Yes. Yes, you're quite right, Carol. Um, And that was what we focused on. Um, One of the early uh, uh, presidents of Yankee was Lou Andrews. And Lou came to Yankee because of an interest in offering private scholarships or scholarships to private schools of kids in, in uh, central city areas. And that's, that operation, Opportunity Scholarship, still continues, and, and that's good. And that opens up opportunities for students to move to other places, to get out of bad schools and move to places where they would get a better education. Um, the CHEF program envisioned opening up more of those opportunities. Uh, unfortunately, for a long time, it was sabotaged by uh, racial requirements in which you could not bring in more than a certain percentage of minority kids. And then, and then you, you never attracted, of course, a lot of uh, suburban kids to leave their good schools and come to the city. So it got off to a very slow start, and it really didn't solve the basic problem. And the basic problem is that when you fund schooling through public money, you create incentives for for school administrators and for teachers, which are not the same as simply getting good education for the kids. They're more bureaucratic, and they're less likely to respond to the varied interests of parents. Uh, Public schools are a kind of one-size-fits-all program, and we know that students learn differently, and um, it's hard for a bureaucracy to handle those kinds of differences. You know what always kills me, Jerry, is when unions say something like, well, if we allow choice in education, everyone will leave and only the least capable or uh, least financially stable or whatever students will be left in the public school. And what I always feel like answering back is, well, why would that be? Mm-hmm. Why indeed would that be? If you're providing the kind of quality education and quality opportunity that you should be providing, mm-hmm. particularly given that many of these schools are receiving more money per child mm-hmm. than a lot of the schools that um, are, you know, parochial schools or neighborhood schools that are privately funded. Um, there's no reason that should be the case. 
And you're quite right. That's that's what they commonly call creaming or taking off you know, the good students and leaving the bad ones. And the argument is that that leaves schools worse off. But in fact, when you do the studies, the studies show that the competitive effect of some students being able to leave kind of focuses the attention of the people who are providing the other schools. Uh, so It's funny how that works. I mean, I notice that it wasn't long after FedEx came along <laughs> that suddenly UPS and even the post office figured out how to provide overnight service for packages. Mm-hmm. A competition has a way of focusing everyone's mind and convincing everyone that they can step it up a little bit. And I don't understand why, um, you know, education, which if as all of us claim, um, we care so much about our children, and our children are our future, as the song says. We should uh, exempt the educational system from the competitive pressures that we uh, impose on the post office. No, we should not, of course. And and we're operating under a, a flawed assumption, which is that the public schools are necessary to produce some kind of universal or standard result uh, to make sure that everybody gets an education. I mean, the the 19th century uh, reform movements grew up partly, to be honest, as a reaction against Catholic schools, but also as an attempt to kind of provide a uniform background for uh, all American students. And the problem is, uh, what standard do you provide? And unfortunately, it's a combination of a lower common denominator and a a device which minimizes the range of experiences that you get. Uh, So it's not a good solution in a society where we value choice, where we think that that's good, and it's going to produce new opportunities that people discover um, you know, the, the analogy that you often use is suppose, for example, that we provided groceries in the same way we provide <laughs> schools, that you go down to your local stop and shop or equivalent and they give you a list. This is what you will have and uh, you don't have any recourse. You know, if, if we're going to provide you with a certain number of pork chops and if you don't happen to like pork chops and you prefer something else, then I'm sorry. That's what the system provides. And you don't have any recourse in a case like that because if it's funded by a government agency, some central authority, uh, you, the pork chops to you are free. You can't just sort of uh, encourage them to walk away from it. So. It's amazing, um, you know, that we would uh, allow ourselves to slip into this kind of abyss of mediocrity, because when you see over time, uh, it's a little bit intimidating to look at some of the things when you get on the Internet and you see these things that school children were being um, taught even a hundred years ago, a hundred fifty years ago, where Latin and Greek and really, it looks to me like fairly high levels yes. of basic literacy uh, were assumed, uh, yes. even for for those in um, in schools where you know certainly college education was not the kind of given that it is for a lot of people today, and then you look at what is. Uh, being consider, you know, held up as the norm today, and you really wonder whether there isn't a lot of sort of education inflation going on. Correct. And you wonder what we've really achieved, 
achieved, quote unquote. And, um, you know, we celebrate diversity in so many ways, which is a great thing. And then we demand this sort of very stifling conformity when it comes to our education system. Yeah. And the, and the evidence, the evidence is there, Carol. I mean, it's, it, no, the word dumbing down has some relevance. Um, uh, and one of the tests of that is, as you mentioned, if you were to take a test of a comparable grade offered 50 years ago in a school and you offer it to students of that grade and that age now, they, they would come in at a much lower rate. It's, it's simply we have lost those uh, – we've lost the, the product that education should be producing. As we wind up, I would just say, again, anyone who claims to care about poor children, underprivileged children, the children – who are struggling the most to achieve the American dream and don't pay serious attention to fixing the education system and reforming it, they're really not serious people, in my view. Correct. Uh, you know, you want to pay attention to microaggressions and stuff <laughs> like that because you, you're not willing to really look at the problem, which includes giving everyone the kind of education that will allow them to make their own way in the world with dignity and independence. And it's just ridiculous. Yes. At any rate, we are here with um, Dr. Gerald Gunderson, uh, Shelby Collum Davis, Professor of American Business and Economic Enterprise Emeritus and Director of the Shelby Collum Davis Endowment at Trinity College, Hartford. And there is so much more to talk about, which is why we are going to wind up this edition of YCT Matters, the Yankee Institute podcast. And we are going to come back and talk again with Dr. Gunderson, Jerry, Yankee Institute board member, we're proud to say, uh, a little bit more about his background and his experience and some of the very interesting work that he's done on things like the nature of social saving, um, the new economic history of America, the wealth creators, and entrepreneurial history of the United States, and so much more. Thank you for joining us for this edition of YCT Matters. I'll show you around this place.